Hello, my friends. Hello, hello. And yes, once again, um, those of you who know me know that I uh, cannot be depended on to be um, organized in when I do my broadcast. So I have no idea when the last time was. I just have to go with the flow, man. My, my mantra is ride the wave. You know, just ride the wave. Take it as it comes. Life is crazy enough as it is. You don't need to make your stress worse. So just go with it. Go with the flow, as they say. Okay, in my ongoing effort to keep things a bit more lighthearted when we're all going slightly crazy, I found a book in my personal library that is perfect. Perfect for this, okay? This book is called, What Were They Thinking? And this was put together by, by Bruce Felton, okay? It was, it, it says, the, the subtitle is Really Bad Ideas Throughout History. And I remember when I bought this book some several years ago, that it, it cracked me up. Um, it was copyrighted in 2003, uh, let me see here. I was trying to find the publisher. Let's see. Globe. Okay. Pequot. P-E-Q. Let's see. P-E-Q-U-O-T. Pequot. Okay. Um, the text and art design was by Casey Shane. The art research by Sue Prinetta. And there are several images in here from, um, from Clipart which if you're on the internet very much, you're very familiar with clip art. So that's, that's the, uh, uh, that's the, the, the initial important stuff. All right. Um, the first in this is called bad ideas in American politics and government. Okay. Now, it has this crazy um, remark at the top that says, Thousands flee as mutant cheese attacks the White House. I, let's find out, shall we? It's called Wackos on the Bench. Two U.S. presidents appointed madmen to the Supreme Court. <laughs> this is um, strangely and scarily appropriate right now, I think. Uh, when John Jay retired as Chief Justice in 1795, President George Washington named jurist John Rutledge to fill the spot. Although Rutledge had been acting strangely since his wife's death three years before, Washington apparently considered a touch of dementia insufficient reason to keep a man off the highest court in the land. And here we all thought Washington was smarter than that, right? Rutledge didn't take long to bite the hand that appointed him. When the Jay Treaty was signed, giving preferential treatment to the North, the South Carolina-born Rutledge railed public publicly against Washington in such abusive and insulting language that even his supporters were shocked. Rutledge managed to serve a full term as Chief Justice before the Senate got around to voting him out on grounds of intermittent insanity. I love that term, intermittent insanity. As if to vindicate their judgment, 
Rutledge immediately attempted to drown himself. On his death in 1800, one associate said his mind was frequently too much deranged as to be in a great measure deprived of his sense. Which was a nice way to say he was a loony. Okay. Pennsylvania attorney Henry Baldwin was appointed to the court by his crony, President Andrew Jackson, in 1829. A workaholic long before the word was coined, he would go weeks with little sleep or food, surviving on a steady diet of small black Mexican cigars. Doesn't sound very tasty to me, excuse me. According to H.L. Carson, in his History of the Supreme Court of the United States, Baldwin bickered incessantly with his fellow justices, loved playing malicious practical jokes, and was occasionally violent and ungovernable in his conduct on the bench. A compulsive speculator, he went seriously into debt, growing paranoid and reclusive and alienating his closest associates. When he died in 1844, the few friends of his left had to take up a collection to bury him. Yeah. So, lunacy in, in, in Washington apparently did not start just you know, recently. Okay, honk if you, this, the title says, honk if you love radiation, sickness, birth defects, and the end of civilization as we know it. Okay, that sounds ominous. The Nevada State Legislature authorized a new license plate in 2002 depicting a mushroom cloud from an atomic explosion. The design awarded first prize in a competition sponsored by the Nevada Test Site Historical Foundation symbolized the 928 nuclear weapon tests conducted in the Nevada desert from 1945 through 1992. It was meant to honor former workers at the test site and the role it played in winning the Cold War, said a foundation spokesman. But the fallout was not altogether positive. I find it extremely tasteless, said Denise Nelson, director of support and education for radiation victims. Even Germany had enough conscience to not put a gas chamber on their license plates. <laughs> okay. Ultimately, the plate proved something of a bomb itself. In the aftermath of the September 11th terrorist attacks, the Nevada Department of Motor Vehicles rejected the concept, noting that any reference on a license plate to weapons of mass destruction is inappropriate and would likely offend our citizens. Uh, you think? Uh, okay. Now, this one says, thousands flee as mutant cheese attacks the White House. Okay, this was the line they teased us with before. In 1835, an upstate New York dairy farmer named Thomas Meacham decided to show his support for President Andrew Jackson by sending him an immense wheel of cheese. For more than a week, Meacham collected the milk produced by his 150 cows, turning it into 1,400 pounds of prime cheddar. He shaped it into a wheel, four feet across and two feet thick, 
which he wrapped in muslin and girdled with a tricolor bunting featuring patriotic slogans and representations of each of the states. The mammoth cholesterol bomb was carried to Washington on a flag-draped cart pulled by 24 horses. For the next two years, it aged quietly at room temperature in a White House vestibule. Then, on February 22, 1837, ten days before Jackson was to depart the presidency, the cheese was brought out and served at a Washington's birthday bash at the executive mansion. Shops and businesses shut down for the day. Congressmen, cabinet members, ambassadors, and socialites showed up. So did thousands of ordinary citizens. Mr. Van Buren was there to eat cheese, reported one Washington newspaper. Mr. Webster was there to eat cheese. Mr. Woodbury, Colonel Benton, Mr. Dickerson, all were there to eat cheese. All you heard was cheese. All you smelled was cheese. In fact, there was cheese everywhere, staining the carpets, ground into the parquet floorboards, smeared on the walls, rubbed into the drapes. Guests left with crumbs of the stuff in their hair and in their pockets. It is said that the stink of overripe cheddar could be smelled for blocks. Inside the White House, the odor didn't fade till well into the Van Buren administration. Okay. Now, first of all, I know this was a long, long, long time ago, but that was a really stupid idea, okay? And second of all, purely on a personal level, I hate cheese. Okay, sue me. I just, I don't like cheese. What can I say? Okay, deaf? No. Dumb? Definitely. As the noise from Ohio's Toledo Express Airport continued to exceed FAA standards and area residents' tolerance, Mayor Cardi Finkbeiner suggested a novel solution in 1995. Move in deaf people. There may be people out there interested in living in a nice home if the noise factor was not going to be a problem, he said at a staff meeting. A lot of people thought they weren't hearing right. Advocates for the disabled jumped all over the mayor, labeling him biased and insensitive. A spokesman for Barrier Free Toledo said the proposal was com- comparable to saying, let the blind work at night because they can't see. At a press conference a few days later, a weepy Mayor Finkbeiner apologized. Nobody intended to be insensitive, he said. My only words were that it was an interesting idea. Okay, you think about that. <laughs> Fuzzy fruit, fuzzier thinking. DBCP is a potent insecticide that kills bugs that even think about bothering fruit that's been sprayed with it. Unfortunately, eating it, handling it, and perhaps even reading about it makes male humans sterile. Indeed, the Food and Drug Administration banned DBCP in 1977, whereupon many peach growers went bananas. Now, I didn't write this, so don't come at me with the, with the, uh, how could you say such a silly thing. Okay, moving on. If sterility is the main concern, couldn't workers who were old enough that they no longer wanted children manufacture DBCP voluntarily? Oh, God said National Peach Council spokesman Robert K. Phillips. 
Some might volunteer for such work posts as an alternative to planned surgery for a vasectomy or as a means of getting around religious bans on birth control when they want no more children. And you thought we only had really idiot people running around today. No, my dears. No, 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 no. They've always been here. Always. (laughs) Okay, this one is called Israel on the Niagara. If one early American Zionist had had his way, Israel would be located near Niagara Falls. In 1820, Mordecai Manuel Noah, editor of the National Advocate, tried to talk New York State Legislator into designating Grand Island, a piece of densely forested real estate north of Buffalo and the Falls, as a city of refuge for, for Jews. The state nixed the idea, but five years later, Noah got his friend Samuel Leggett to buy 2,444 acres of the island for the same purpose and solicited investment from European Jews as well. Publicly, Noah waxed eloquently about the importance of carving out a Jewish homeland on American soil. In private, he drooled about raking in an immense profit from the plan. There's a shock. The dedication of what Noah proclaimed the Jewish Jewish state of Ararat took place on September 15, 1825 at St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Buffalo. It would have been held on Grand Island, but there weren't enough boats to ferry all the guests. Having ordained himself governor and judge of Israel, Noah dressed the part, appearing in a magisterial red robe trimmed with ermine. It turned out to be a Richard III costume borrowed from a local theater company, actually. The festivities were attended by public officials, local clergy, officers of various fraternal lodges, including the Masons and the Knights Templar and the Seneca Indian chief, Red Jacket. In his dedicatory remarks, Noah decreed polygamy said flattering things about Native Americans who he believed were descended from the tribes of Israel, and levied a tax of one Spanish dollar on every Jew in the world to defray the cost of getting the colony running. He never had the chutzpah to collect so much as a nickel, nor did a single Jew ever settle in this tree-covered wasteland. Politicians jumped on him for swindling the wealthy Jews of Europe, and Noah quickly turned his attention to other pursuits. In 1833, all of Grand Island was bought for a song by a land developer, and in 1852, it was incorporated as a town. Of its 18,000 present-day inhabitants, barely a handful are Jews. I swear. This world. This one's called Ecology. Hogwash. Logging companies applauded in 2002 when President George W. Bush appointed Alan Fitzsimmons to head the Interior Department's Wildfire Prevention Program. But pygmy, excuse me, pygmy rats, sand skunks, skinks, skunks, sand skinks, excuse me, and other endangered species started thinking about increasing their life insurance. As head of Balanced Resource Solutions, a Woodbridge, Virginia consulting firm, Fitzsimmons had authored a number of articles and monographs 
denying the existence of ecosystems and suggesting that there are worse things than letting endangered species die out. If every one of the 1,202 species on the Fish and Wildlife Service's endangered and threatened list were to become extinct tomorrow, he said, it would be disconcerting but would not constitute a crisis. Not surprisingly, his views made environmentalists nervous. How could a man who doesn't understand ecological systems and community values for wildlife run a program that's supposed to protect forests and communities? Asked John McCarthy, a spokesman for the Idaho Conservation League. Once again, my people, once again, this is proof that the weirdness didn't just begin. I mean, this was President George W. in 2002, okay? That's not in the last four years when weird stuff has been, you know, haunting us. This is like, you know, relatively recent. Uh, and and the, the complete stupidity of some people is just overwhelming to me. How you could ever think that one species out there is expendable is beyond me. How you cannot understand the simple fact of the food cycle at the very least, right? Okay, here's one. How to stamp out woodchucks. New Hampshire legislators once tried to wipe out the state's woodchuck population by offering a bounty for every woodchuck killed. They took back the offer when it threatened to wipe out the state treasury. The bounty, which became law on September 11, 1883, was established on the strength of a report submitted by the New Hampshire Legislative Woodchuck Committee. The woodchuck is absolutely destitute of any interesting qualities. The report observed, in some parts of the state, it is, found to ne- it, it is found necessary to shovel a path through the woodchucks to reach the barns. Throughout New Hampshire, woodchucks were despised by farmers and townspeople alike as notorious despoilers of crops and clover fields. Anyone killing one and presenting the tale as proof to a town selectman was entitled to a payment of 10 cents. Okay, back then 10 cents was a big deal. Just putting that out there. In 1884, the bounty's first full year in operation, only 339 payments were made. But in 1885, the kill count skyrocketed to, get this, 122,065. And state finance officials panicked. Treasurer Solon A. Carter called for the immediate repeal of the law, and on August 11th, the legislature obliged, although payments continued to be made as late as 1888. Since then, the whacking of woodchucks in New Hampshire has been on a strictly not-for-profit basis. Oh, my goodness, my goodness. You know... (laughs) Let me put it this way. I had this discussion recently with someone. If you have a species and they're annoying to you and you want to wipe them out, okay, for your benefit, for your comfort, for your peace of mind, whatever it is, there's one thing you're forgetting. There's like 
a chain of command on this planet. There is the food chain. Survival of the fittest. Whatever you want to say. But there's a food chain. And let's talk about the woodchucks, for instance. Just because we just read the story. There are species of creatures who need the woodchuck for food. There are other species that the woodchuck needs for food. If you have a food chain and you chop out the middle hunk of that food chain, you're pretty much um, destroying the whole thing because you're denying those who fed on the woodchucks their food and those species that the woodchuck would have fed on don't have a natural predator anymore and they will prolificate. Is that a word? They will be prolific, let's say, in their um, uh, multiplication. (laughs) Yeah. So let's say the woodchuck would feed on... I don't even know what a woodchuck eats, to be perfectly honest. I haven't looked it up. But let's say a woodchuck would... Uh, feed on little mice, field mice, okay? Now, as we all know, if you live anywhere near the country, you know that field mice are prolific anyway. They're everywhere. But let's say you take out their natural predator and they don't have any danger to their existence anymore. Yeah. Think about how many little field mice are going to overtake your home your farm, your barn, everything. Yeah, how they talked about having to uh, scoop the, the shovel, the, the woodchucks out of the way just to get to the barn. That's how it would be with the field mice. And I don't know about you, but that does not thrill me. I don't like mice, okay? I don't, I don't want to see them. I don't want to deal with them. Let them go on their merry little way and do their little mouse thing, but I don't want to see it, hear it, experience it, okay? So... Leave them alone. Just leave them alone. My philosophy, my people, something I try to live by, every single living thing, whether it walks, crawls, slithers, or grows. Sorry about that. Every single living thing, as I said, whether it walks, crawls, slithers, grows, whatever it does, is valuable, it is essential, and it should be respected and cherished, even mosquitoes, even gnats. I mean, I granted when the gnats are in your house, they drive you absolutely insane, but there is a purpose for every single living thing. So try to understand that, try to remember that, and try to be respectful, okay? That's about all I got today. Uh, We'll go back to this book at a later time and and investigate some more nonsense. um, Just to prove that that the weird, crazy times we're living in right now um, aren't that unique. (laughs) Okay? So remember what I always tell you. Please be kind to each other. These days, that's needed even more than usual. Just share a smile. Um hard to do when you're wearing a mask but 
wave, nod your head, whatever you have to do. But people, wearing a mask is not that big a deal. When you go in the store, put on the mask. You may think the whole thing is a hoax. You may think the whole uh, COVID thing is nonsense. And that's fine. You may very well be right. But are you willing to take the chance? I'm not. I don't, I don't, I don't care. Whether it's real or not, I am, until I know absolutely, I'm wearing a mask for the little bit of time I spend in the store. Okay? So just put on the mask, make everybody else feel comfortable, and be kind to each other, and try to ignore all the meanness that keeps being spouted and sent our way. Okay? Talk to somebody. Um, if you're feeling low, find ways to cope. Find ways to cope. Do a craft. Go for a rock. Um, plant a flower. You know, love your pet. Love your children. Love your grandchildren. Whatever you need to do. If something's really bothering you, write it down. Okay? Love you.